Welcome to the All Roads Podcasts. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Sam Kindick. And I'm Sam Hahn. And we're two experts in ancient Greece and Rome. And today we're going to talk about the 2006 movie 300 and the Battle of Thermopylae. Hear the music. There was no cause for fear. It was not a god that was threatening Greece, but a man. There never was, nor would ever be, a mortal who was not liable to misfortune from the day of birth. And the greater the mortal, the greater the misfortune. So their enemy too, being but a mortal, will be bound to fall from the height of glory. This comes to us from Herodotus's Histories, Book 7 shortly before the Battle of Thermopylae. Of course, you're talking about Xerxes and his threat to the Greeks defending their homeland. Uh, and today, Sam, I think we want to talk a little bit more about the Battle of Thermopylae and perhaps the most famous representation of that battle, at least in recent popular culture, Zack Snyder's 2006 movie, 300. Yeah, and it's... Uh... Yeah, it's the most popular. I mean, it's crazy now. It's almost 20 years old. Yeah. Um, the most popular rendition of the battle, but it's not a rendition that's based off of Herodotus, at least not directly. Right. Right. It's, um. I mean, the, the screenplay was written by Zack Snyder, uh, Kurt uh, Johnstad, and, and Michael B. Gordon, but it's actually based on a graphic novel. I have to resist my natural urge to say comic book uh it's based on a graphic novel by frank miller uh called 300 which was written in 1998 and mm -hmm. just because i like interconnectivity and intertextuality and connections frank miller was heavily influenced by the 1962 movie the 300 spartans right which i haven't seen i've not but i assume i assume in turn that was then right it goes back to some of our og source material um which is herodotus but there's also bits of a little Aeschylus here. I think we've got some mm. Plutarch um, yeah. and a few others uh, sprinkled throughout. But oh yeah, we got Plutarch. Don't worry, don't worry, dear listener. There's plenty oh, you got of Plutarch us? to go around. <laughs> you got. I know there's there's there are other Plutarch podcasts on the internet. Uh, there are, there are. Uh, you know, I think we talked about Plutarch a little bit in our Assassin's Creed Odyssey series that we're putting on pause for the time being. Hopefully, we'll come back to that game one day. But. Uh, you know, we don't have, we're not overly fond of Plutarch and how accurate he, he is of describing things. And a lot of what we know about Spartan culture is derived from Plutarch, uh, writing about the life of Lycurgus, kind of this mythological lawgiver in Sparta. And also he has a collection of like famous Spartan women's sayings. Uh, mm. So like lines like, you know, come back. Uh, with your shield or on it. All of this yeah. comes from Plutarch, who of course is a Roman source um, or a source from Roman times. So again, much, much later than where we are in 480 BC in the Persian Wars. So we've got a movie based on a comic graphic novel, excuse mm -hmm. me, based on a movie, based on a historical account that's written, what, 
30 years, 40 years after the fact? When's Harada this writing? Do we know when? I guess with the the, the, the order of well, composition, right? This is book seven. So we, do we know when he writes book seven? Uh, I, I don't know when we know when we write book seven, but Herodotus, I think for context, is about, I think, five years old when the Battle of Thermopylae actually happens. Uh, I think he's born in like 485. Battle of Thermopylae is 480. Again, we're in BC. Uh, we're talking about right now. Um, and he doesn't really publish his histories until uh, into the Peloponnesian War. So he's publishing in like, you know, I think the 430s, 420s, something like that. So again, he's not even present for a lot of what happens. Or if he is, he's like a very small child. So a lot of what he's getting is secondhand, thirdhand hearsay. Again, Herodotus gets criticized a lot for having not the most solid historical method, if I'm being uh generous again he's oftentimes called the father of history or more famously dr sam the father of lies the father of lies exactly so you know i love it I uh, love this it. is always the difficulty reconstructing ancient history asian culture is whatnot is sometimes your sources i uh, are not reliable or really far removed from what they're writing about uh and this is somewhat the case for the battle of thermopylae but i think we're yeah. getting away from 300 yeah and i was just saying sometimes you you know, sort of choose to not follow the sources because you're making art. And I think that's sort of what's going on here as well. But we'll right. we'll come back yeah. to the hat. Um, so I mean, right off the bat, you've am I correct? You had not seen this movie before you you watched it for this show. I, I had not. Again, I know the memes, I've seen the clips, but I'd never watched it through in a single setting, uh, which I have now done. What's your what's your what are your first uh, thoughts? What's your initial impression? Um, I think it is moderately entertaining. I <laughs> I I think I was shocked at how wrong it is constantly. Like I knew, you know, people have criticized this movie and we'll we'll dive into that later. People have criticized this movie for being I think people have called it critics called it cartoonish. Um, it is pretty juvenile in its understanding of Greek culture, Greek thought. It I mean, it's based on a comic his... book, so cartoonish right. and, you know, juvenile both sure. sort of uh, fit the... Uh, uh, graphic the, novel, uh, Sam. Yeah. Oh, um, so... We'll, we'll edit that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I felt... I, I... When I watched this movie, I was expecting more... Because it is it is so polarizing. People love it. People hate it. And I, I I wondered if there was a little bit of like, how much of redemption can you get? Like, how much of it is too much on either side? Is there a middle ground? Uh, but I watched it and I'm very much on. It's not that good uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, I think it is visually impressive. I, I think that is like the one thing it has really going for it. Like, it is a visual festival feast i don't know the what the what the right world but the the orgy. visuals of yeah maybe that is probably yeah a visual orgy on screen uh but in terms of content like ugh, bad did you watch uh where did you watch it did you watch a, a edited for tv version or did you see the the the, the pure unadulterated i don't know if there's an unrated version of this i i watched the version that is available to rent for four dollars on apple tv that's okay, the version you, i watched yeah, yeah. So, so i think i watched yeah, yeah. the regular one i don't think i watched yeah. an edited version okay yeah 
Yeah, and there's also a lot of like weird gratuitous nudity in this as yes, well. That's true. Um, but okay. Oh yeah. Also in the comic book. Uh, sorry, graphic novel. I'm just flipping through it. And did you know Spartans did not wear pants? I did not know that. There are some famous paintings of Spartans not wearing pants, but I don't think in their day to day. I think that's like uh, a heroic nudity thing, right? But there's yeah. So the, you know, uh, in education, you know, this idea of the gymnasium being mm-hmm. a place of education is important and dear listener in case you didn't know gymnasium literally has the word naked at the very front when you go to the gym you're supposed to exercise in the nude um and this i think was pretty standard both for men and women actually in, in sparta which was a little bit irregular um, again sparta is kind of unique among a lot of the greek city states in history they have a very special culture then again we'll kind of dive into and dissect and talk about how the film actually treats it uh quite badly actually but uh um, yeah i mean well we can we can we can start there i was just going to ask you one more sort of question sure. about the adaptation um yeah. you know you're not you obviously weren't the biggest fan but it, you no. thought it was visually um you know impressive which i think is right you know it has a very specific yeah feel and and and, and you know again it's based on the graphic novel so a lot of the shots you know you can see replicated in mm-hmm. frank miller's 300 mm-hmm. yeah but if you think, you know, that they're they're misrepresenting Spartan society, I'm not disagreeing with you. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But, you know, is it is it better to have a movie about the ancient world, a movie about Sparta, a movie that gets people talking and interested in the, you know, the the famous battles of the Greco-Persian wars. I mean, is it is it better to have that and have people talk about it, have interest in ancient history, um, or and be sort of hyperbolic, or is it would it be better to not have the movie at all? What do you think? Uh, you know, I'm not sure how much this movie sparks people to actually do critical analysis of Greek history, of Spartan culture, how much it actually prompts people to do research as opposed to creating an ideal that um, is deeply problematic. You know, um, there's a eugenics component of Spartan culture that is kind of wholly embraced in this movie, which is a very disturbing. Um, And there is this kind of like, you know, very strict male and female roles. This is what it's like to be a man. This is what it's like to be a woman. And there's also this kind of xenophobia baked into it. And I think there is just so much problematic uh, of a worldview that isn't even really doesn't even really map on to what the ancients even thought. So it's not even doing a good job of maybe depicting what we would see as problematic in ancient thought. It's just, I think, putting in a lot of hurtful ideas and kind of pretending to ground it in history in a way that it is easy for people who are not going to do that kind of extra research to kind of like accept whole cloth and assume that this is, you know, a sort of ideal that we can aspire to, you know, Sparta is really hard to talk about just because the archeological record isn't as strong as most other places. There's almost no written text from Sparta. So much of what we know about Sparta is coming from secondhand sources, thirdhand sources. Again, we very, very little of Spartans talking about themselves or the Athenians, right. Who are right. the enemies of Sparta in the second half of the fifth century. Right. right? They fight each and, other in the Peloponnesian yeah, war. Exactly. So there's all of those things too. And, and this also leads to what people have called the Spartan mirage, 
I don't know if you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard this term listener. You may not have, but it is this idea that like the Spartan ideal of this, you know, perfectly orderly, orderly, you know, law abiding, religious group of warriors who are kind of innately better than all these other people is very much a picture that we get presented to us and one that we know isn't really all that accurate. And we can dive into all the different reasons why this kind of like idealized version of Spartan society falls apart under any amount of scrutiny. Uh, but so much of our source material and the ancient thought about Spartans very much points in that direction. Um, but again, once we actually start analyzing what the Spartans are doing in the region where they live and actually just the archaeological record, right? You know, one example would be the Spartans you oftentimes think of as, you know, having very simple, no money, they're not concerned with wealth. And this is very much an idea that is perpetuated in antiquity, right? Again, we mentioned this ancient lawgiver like Kyrgyz, who gives down the laws and he is very much concerned about wealth and whatnot. But when we go to like Olympia, where the Olympics were held, we see these very elaborate statues dedicated by Spartans in celebration of their victory. And this idea that all of these Spartans were living, you know, free of, of the, you know, the influences of wealth and whatnot really doesn't actually hold up once you actually see the sorts of things that they're doing. There's also lots of mentions in sources about, you know, luxury items like purple cloth and um, various other kind of luxury goods being in Sparta. And, you know, as much as the Spartans like to project this idea of equality amongst all people who are Spartan citizens, wealth is very much concentrated at the top still, right? I don't need to, we don't have to go too deep on, but again, Spartan, the Spartan political structure is, you know, you have your two kings, one who goes to war and one who deals with things domestically. You have this assembly of elders um, who are all past the age of serving in the military, who serve as this kind of like council. And then you have these people called the ephors who are like 30 plus year olds who are meant to be like a check and balance on the kings. And then you have like an agenda general assembly. Um, and all of the evidence we have is all of the wealth is concentrated at the top. As much as the Spartans talk about this equality, not concerning about wealth, the people who are the richest are the kings and the ephors. Um, and eventually, you know, and, and so a lot of what is presented to us as Sparta, again, is this mirage. I want to come back and talk um, after the break in the sort of second half of the episode about the notion of freedom and slavery. Yeah, which we get a lot of in this film. Yes. Um, so let's let's bookmark that. But I mean, yeah, let's let's keep talking about Sparta and maybe the way it's sort of presented in this this film right we get this yeah. this look at the you know the austerity of spartan life we get this sort of you know uh evolution of king leonidas as he goes you know from first a child he's you know you mentioned the eugenics he's inspected to make mm -hmm. sure that he is his perfect and you know it's that was happening all over the ancient world uh so it wasn't specifically spartan but, you know, the killing of babies or the exposing of babies was, you know, pretty widespread. Um, so it wasn't simply a Spartan thing and it simply wasn't simply a eugenics thing, um, though there were eugenic components, I think, in Sparta. Mm -hmm. And 
then he grows up, right? And the Spartans have this institution called the Agoge, right? When you're a kid, and when I say you're a kid, when we're talking about Spartans, we're talking we're talking about a a small ruling class, yes, because there are a tremendous number of slaves in Sparta, mm, mm-hmm. right? There are yes. slaves. There are uh, sort of lesser um, people with, with with lesser legal status that live all yeah. around Sparta. The perioikoi. Um, exactly. Right. Those literally living around um, the neighbors. And so it's a very small group of people, but the, the, the kids go into this, this thing called the agoge. Right. And we see this with, with Leon in this, where he's trained mm-hmm. from, you know, he's in the cold. I don't know how much it snows in right. the Peloponnese, yeah. but <laughs> he's in the, in the cold and he's fighting other kids and his dad, well, his dad was like beating him up first. And then he fights that wolf, right? Mm-hmm. That weird, weirdly skinny, but also very bristly wolf. Mm-hmm. And I le- I mean, what do you think about that scene? Did you? I, I mean, it's not subtle. You're like, okay, again, I know, I know what the Battle of Thermopylae is. Maybe if I'd never heard of it before. I wouldn't get it, but he's like in this thin pass and here comes this wolf and he kills this wolf and, you know, wears its skin and then makes a necklace out of one of its teeth or claws that his wife carries with her. Like, uh, again, it's not it's not subtle, um, you know, maybe it's effective of setting it up again. It's a little too on the nose for me, but I mean, I get it. I'll t- you know I'll, I'll take foreshadowing when I can get it, you know, or okay. I should say when I when I myself can am, am smart enough to pick up on it. Uh, I'll take that any day of the week that ends with why. And so he grows up and, you know, he, then he becomes the the sort of leader. He's the king. But this, the Agoge is a real thing, yeah, right? It is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Age of seven, right? The boys are are sent off to do this sort of like very strict training. They're kind of starved. And so they're encouraged to steal food to actually keep themselves fed. And again, there's this kind of brutal regime. They're getting beaten. They're putting... You know, I think, you know, traditionally, again, a lot of this, you know, we have to take a lot of this with a grain of salt because a lot of this information comes from none other than Plutarch. Um, but, you know, the the story goes, you know, they got one cloak for the winter. They had to make their own like very simple beds, um, to, you know, to lay in the dirt sort of thing. And the idea is, right, this helps build them into great warriors. Um, Sam, you mentioned slavery and we'll talk more about Greek understandings of freedom. But I'm curious where do these Spartans get all of this time to become these great warriors? Like, why isn't Athens doing this with their kids if they wanted to compete with Sparta? They have jobs, right? What's your profession, Spartans? Right? Well, in Athens, yeah. just like the... Uh, where were those guys from in the movie? The Thorians or something? Uh, I think they are the Thespians, if I'm not mistaken. Historically, again, there were both historically that the Thespians were there, but I forget the. I, the I forget what these guys that, are from. Yeah, but um, it's um, Arcadian, yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, anyways, yeah, and so like the one guy's a potter, the other guy's a sculptor, and first of all, I was like, these are very skilled laborers that are are here fighting, right? Most yeah. people would just be like, I'm a farmer, right? Exactly, um, but they're farming, right? They're they're doing stuff. They got, I mean. Not that Athens isn't a slave owning society and not that the, you know, the elite in Athens, you know, had this sort of notion against actually working with your hands. But in Spartans, right, they're they're totally freed up to work and be professional soldiers all day. Mm -hmm. 
because they've got this massive slave society that's growing all the food for them. Right. Like basically every Spartan man gets like allotment of land. And with that allotment of land comes a slave family and the slave family tends it and they get to keep a portion of what they, you know, what they produce, but the rest of it goes to Sparta and this particular man and his family. Um, I think also when you read Herodotus, when we actually get to the Battle of Thermopylae, he mentions, he doesn't give us numbers, but he mentions that the, again, these these enslaved people by the Spartans were known as the, the helots, that there was as many as seven helots per Spartan warrior there to attend to them. And these guys kind of serve as the light infantry. Like these are not the guys with the big shields and the armor and the spears. Like these guys are probably throwing javelins, but um, the Spartans are not the only ones there. And again, regularly went into battle uh, with the Helots. And this actually is, you know, kind of a, a, a problem for Sparta. Again, slave owning is obviously wrong. Uh, but for the Spartans, they have this very small group of like these elite soldiers, and they are massively outnumbered by all of these people that they've enslaved. Um, and they are constantly having to deal with kind of, you know, slave revolts, these people wanting their own freedom. We'll come back to that rising up and fighting against sparta and so it's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where sparta has to become this militaristic society because in order to maintain a militaristic society you have to have all of these slaves and you have to have a very strong fighting force to actually put down these slave revolts over and over and over again to actually maintain maintain control and in fact i i i read this when i was doing research for the episode that the e4s in sparta would declare war on the helots every single year yeah it was a ritual yeah right and so it was legal for any spartan citizen to kill a helot and not be accused and not have to you know uh under you know not be accused of homicide it was not illegal to commit murder against a helot and they even had like secret police among the helots and killing them regularly to kind of again put down any sort of rebellion um so it is, you know, again, we'll we'll talk more in detail about freedom at the end of the episode. But again, this idea of like what makes Sparta Sparta is this idea that they actually aren't doing the farming, unlike the Athenians and whatnot. Um, they have an entire kind of subclass um, entirely doing that so they can fully devote themselves to this military training. Yeah, to this notion. Right. And it's one of the things that's interesting about Sparta. Um, again, it's 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 problematic because, as as you mentioned, Sam, our sources are so scanty. I mean, this is yeah. a problem with Greece, you know, as a whole, the, the Athenians mm-hmm. just left such, you know, relatively such a large sort of imprint, right? They, yeah. they wrote a lot. Um, they, they talked, you know, they're, they were like Socrates, right? They just keep talking, yeah. talking, yeah. talking, talking, uh-huh. Uh-huh. writing, writing, writing. I mean, we're happy for it. We're glad, but so many, I mean, the, the, the Greek world was made up of thousands of small cities. Mm-hmm. And we just have this tremendously outside vision of the Athenians dominating. So when people think about ancient Greece, they think about Athens, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, ancient Greece wasn't a thing. It was a sort of shared Hellenic culture. It wasn't a country like Rome or something. Right. Um, but a lot of what we know about the Spartans you know, comes from later sources, comes from secondary tertiary sources, but a lot of it comes from the smart, from the Athenians. Yeah. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's interesting, but I think one of the things that our sources have drawn out are the sort of the difference that the the women in Sparta have, they seem to have Mm -hmm. a different relationship with the community and with their husbands Mm -hmm. than, for example, Athenian women. 
Yeah. Um, so I think that's interesting. And we get that. I mean, we don't want to, I don't want to go too, too far from the movie, but right. uh, cause nominally that's what we're talking about. Queen uh, uh, Gorgo, right. Mm-hmm. She is, you know, she's really sort of embodying, right. And, and when I say Queen uh, Gorgo, I mean, Cersei Lannister. Um, right. With Lady Heedy. And I mean, she sort of embodies this sort of Spartan woman who is serving her king, who is her husband. She's serving the community. She's advocating um, for her her king and her husband. She is, you know, comfortable. She's comfortably uncomfortable with the fact that her son is about to go to the Agoge, right? It is mm. it is Sparta first in right. everything. Right. Which is very much, yeah. I, I think that she is a good example of maybe places where the film gets some things right about Spartan culture. Uh, again, Spartan women have a very different existence than Athenian women. Again, all of this, you know, in elite society, you know, if you're poor, you can't follow a lot of these prescriptive, like women should only stay at home sort of things. Right. But, you know, in elite Athenian society, women are mostly confined to the home, mostly dealing with, you know, domestic crafts like weaving and cooking and caring for children. And a lot of that is kind of taken off Spartan women. Spartan women are very much living outside. They are educated. They are trained. They they are like very uh, athletic. Um, they're oftentimes competing with uh, boys when they are young, mm-hmm. in these sorts of like athletic competitions and whatnot. And they're not trained as warriors, but again, very much like childbirthing is like what is their responsibility, and the the slaves will do the rest essentially. Like these women do weave, but again, other than that, they're not doing the educating and whatnot a lot of this education is happening you know because the education is very focused on the military so there are other people doing the educating in, in the spartan society um you know like and some wolves, people will, the wolves that live in the snowy rocky forest right and you know uh, women also in sparta like had a lot more rights in terms of like inheriting property and part of this is like kind of again a necessary consequence of having a militaristic society that is very, you know, that practices infanticide among the boys, not really the girls. So there is also in Sparta this kind of uh, misbalance where there are more women than men, and the men are constantly dying in war. Uh, again, this will eventually be a real problem for Sparta because they can't keep their population up. And so, you know, by the Roman period, they're basically just a theme park uh, because there are so few of them left and they have no real power anymore because their population dwindles so significantly. I think Aristotle in the fourth century has their, the numbers at Sparta below a thousand, like Sparta, like diminishes very, 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 very quickly um, because it's not really sustainable. But as a result, there are all of these women whose fathers die and don't have any sons to leave their property to. And so there are a lot of land owning women in Sparta, again, also now slave owning women in Sparta. Um, and I think Aristotle said, again, by the time he was writing, like, two-fifths of all of the land in Sparta was owned by women, uh, which, again, kind of would make sense with a society where your men are either killed at birth or killed in battle uh, for the most part. And we do get a glimpse of that, right, in the movie when, uh, you know, in, in the movie, right, the Effers who have been bought off. Well, we can talk more about the Effers in a second. Um, sure. They've been bought off by the Persians, right, and with them, uh, Theron, played by... Uh, Dominic West, uh, McNulty from The Wire, um, <laughs> or King Charles. I guess he was King Charles in The Crown. But 
the, the F say, well, we can't go, right? We can't, you know, that there's a weird right. Oracle there, right? The teenage girl who's like writhing underwater, mm-hmm. um, but not underwater. And they say we can't go because they've been bought off, right? The reality right. is, you know, th- there was a religious festival called the Carnea um, that was very important to the Spartans. It was the reason the Spartans missed the Battle of Marathon during right. the first uh, invasion, right? They, yes. they were like, we, we, we have to be at the Carnea for another week. And then, you know, it'll take us three days to get to Marathon. So we'll be there in 10 days. Uh, the Athenians saw their opportunity and took it before the Spartans arrived. So same mm-hmm. religious festival prevents them from going to help out the rest of the Greek alliance. But they still send Leonidas and his bodyguard of 300. Though in the movie, right, he leaves, you know, against the will. He, right. he does this on – he's just going for a walk, he says. Um but in, in in reality, the Spartans did send. You know, he was he was sent. It was a legit expedition. But he right. makes a point in the movie of saying, "All the men who are coming with me have sons." Yes. So there was this nod to sort of the threat posed by you know the sort of the threat of depopulation posed by war, and mm-hmm. a, a a a reminder of sort of yeah the demographic problems that Sparta is is. Uh, is facing and you know I I'm very fascinated in demographics. We don't know anything yeah. about demographics from the ancient world, right? But the the best you know I think you can sum up a lot of demographics in the the question you know how long does it take to make a thirty year old? Yeah, it takes thirty years. That's how it right. goes? So you, you you can't just quickly you know churn out another army. You can't you know grow warriors uh, on trees. So we did get yeah. that glimpse. Um, and Herod- and Herodotus mentions this specifically in his histories that all 300 men had sons. And again, the note in the translation that I read basically said that uh, Spartans considered men with sons to be the most motivated of soldiers because, you know, you want to come home and educate your son and make sure that he interesting. grows up right. So again, this is like a big investment for, for Sparta. Now, Sam, historically, were there only 300 people at the Battle of Thermopylae? Uh well three thousand three hundred and one if you include Ephialtes, um yeah. no right so there's as you mentioned right the helots are there so right. we maybe have two thousand plus helots we've got all the other Greek allies who have sort of joined up uh-huh. so we probably have ballpark ten thousand Greeks yeah the number I see oftentimes is like seven thousand but it's it's way more than three three hundred and the spartans don't just send these 300 spartan citizens they send the helots like you mentioned and they also send like i think 700 perioikoi so actually the force that sparta sends to the battle of thermopylae is closer to a thousand plus the kind of unable to calculate number of helots who are also fighting right. as light infantrymen that's that's why i said ten thousand because i don't think the helots are counted if, if we've right. got no 2, for sure not helots I don't think they're counted in that 7,000 number, which is often no. sort of thrown around. Right, exactly. Yeah, so again, it, it's actually a, a really sizable, again, not the largest force that Greeks the Greeks will rally for the Persians. That'll happen at the Battle of Plataea. That'll be the largest you know, group of Greek soldiers gathered to fight uh, the Persians, which, of course, we see at the very end of this movie. But again, uh, this movie, and a lot of people assume historically that it is just 300 guys um, here holding off the pass. And there's actually quite a lot more uh, there for most of the battle. And it's only really toward the end that Leonidas sends off kind of most of that force. 
Yeah, and uh, we can return to this because uh, I want to talk more about the battle specifically. Yeah. We can talk about the the geography of Thermopylae as we can mm-hmm. reconstruct it. But I think the 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 ground that you're fighting on is also much bigger than the movie uh, sort of presents. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Um, but before we take our break, I want to just talk a little bit about the efforts because yeah. I'm sure yeah. I'm there's no way that that was the most uncomfortable thing in that movie for you. I think I was probably the only one who, when that weird leprous epper licks the, the Oracle. Yeah. I this, uh, this movie. Yeah. Again, go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to react to this. You're stammering, Again, Sam. Th- this, this movie, it's treatment of women just sucks so bad. Like even, you know, queen Gorgo is, it, it, it's just, I, I don't know. There's so much objectifying of women in this movie that is just like so uncomfortable and so unnecessary and weird. And also it's just like they completely get the ephors wrong. Like what are these weird guys with growths on the top of this mountain? Who is this Oracle? Like, again, like the Oracle of Delphi is really important in the Persian Wars uh, because basically it is true. The Oracle is very much on the side of Xerxes um, in terms of just like, there's no chance that we'll beat Xerxes. And in fact, famously when the Greeks fight the Persians in this great war, most of the Greek city States, you know, there are over a thousand Greek city States um, that we know of at this time, almost all of them. When Xerxes sends his representatives asking for earth and water, give it. It's only really Athens, Sparta, and Sparta's allies who are the ones who stand up against Persia. And in fact, oftentimes the Greeks are fighting Greeks because Xerxes brings them into his army. Um, so it, it is this kind of interesting thing. What I I don't know, even know what on earth this could be in reference to in history. The E4s were actually much younger than this, were political figures, more bureaucrats than anything else. Yeah, I I don't I didn't understand it, but again, yeah, the, the Oracle, I think that may, maybe the Dominic West character is probably the closest. Probably she, was was he supposed to be the other king? I was kind of confused about. I don't know what he was because he's also in like the assembly or the council of elder. I'm I'm unclear exactly where he. Again, there's a lot of conflation, right? Where's the second king of Sparta? The E fours are are these weird religious figures, not political figures. Yeah. The assembly of of Spartans doesn't seem to exist. And maybe there's just this like Senate-like structure, which again, isn't really what Sparta has going on. Again, I think they kind of screw up the politics of it kind of every which way. Um, my guess, my, my understanding was this guy was just a member of the assembly because he's not old enough to actually be among the elders. Yeah, I, I'm guessing that the 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 efforts are just sort of, you know, they're trying to convey the sense that there was a religious reason to not send the army, which is the Carnea. Right. That they're trying, you know, oh, there was a religious thing stopping them. Well, you know, religion is just sort of an invention by the priests. Therefore, they're taking bribes and they're just sort of manipulating the system. I don't think that's. I don't think that's what the historical account is suggesting no. that there was any sort of bribery or paying people no. off. And, and, um, and Leonidas is like weirdly 
anti-religion in that moment like let's just use our minds i don't care what the gods say which is actually kind of like contrary to the historical picture we get however problematic of leonidas that he's actually deeply religious like most of sparta actually so it is kind of this this funny thing where he's like i'm a man of reason and not a man of religion which again is just like kind of again ahistorical yeah and i'm just looking through the graphic novel there is no licking of the the oracle right she's not good yeah good i I mean i'm glad that there's one fewer place where that actually that's a Zack snyder thing so yeah Okay. Well, well, let's, let's take I a was break. About, well, I would oh, say one want, more thing before oh, I take one a more break. thing. One, okay. one more thing about Sparta. Yeah. Just the giant pit, right? Where we yeah. kick that Persian embassy like into, we throw them in. This is Sparta. And of course, after, mm-hmm. you know, it becomes yeah. an amusement park. This is Sparta land. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a pit. Um, well, there was oh, a. Oh, really? There's a crevasse. It's not in Sparta. It's in the mountains near Sparta. But there was this this chasm, and they found a lot of bones at the bottom of it, Um, human bones and skulls Mm. that have been sort of basically attacked with weapons, um, signs of weapon damage. Uh, And there's been earthquakes, and so they're, you know, that sort of closed part of it up. So they're not even sure how deep it was at one point. But, you know, was there a beautifully uh, masoned well in the middle of the city that they kicked people into? No. But there was, you know, it, it is based off of something, which is, that's kind of cool. You know, it's, huh. again, as we try to reconstruct Sparta based on, you know, incomplete and problematic archaeological evidence and, you know, very little textual record, you know, anytime you can find a connection between, uh, you know, Anything you find anything is, is kind of neat. So why don't we take our break there? Uh, yeah. And when we come back, we can talk about the battle itself. All right. And we're back. Welcome back to the All Roads podcast, where we are talking today about the movie 300 mm-hmm. and the battle of Thermopylae which is where Sam I want to turn now. Right? Yeah, We've let's talked do it. about some of the historical um backgrounds in Sparta, some of the cultural things. Um but just I mean super super broad strokes, right? About 10 years previously, the Persians came and tried to invade Greece because the the Athenians and some other people went over to Persia and liberated some Greek cities in the Ionian coast. They they they, right. they burned some cities in Sparta and uh, Persia. Excuse me. So the Persians came back under the leadership of King Darius, uh, and they were defeated at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, they went home. Ten years later, Darius's son Xerxes launches the, a second expedition, a bigger expedition with an army. Uh, marching on the land with a navy and they're coming in and they are threatening the freedom of the Greeks. I know. Can you imagine 5 million Persians descending on Greece? Uh, I think that's, I think that's roughly the number Herodotus gives us, which is a pretty laughable number. Uh, I think he says 3 million, but you know, what's, what's a million here or there. 
Right. It doesn't really make any sort of sense in terms. I think he says three million for the Battle of Thermopylae. I think like the number, okay. if you count, if you do the calculation for all of the forces that Xerxes supposedly sends to Greece, it's like five million. It doesn't make sense. There's no way to feed or house or mobilize this number of people in what is essentially a bunch of mountains. Um, again, Greece is a terrible place to have a big army. Um, so it is kind of funny. Again, Herodotus gets made fun of for getting all sorts of things wrong. And famously like overinflates numbers especially on the enemy side uh, when he talks about persia yeah and numbers uh of course a little insider baseball right numbers in ancient historians are notoriously problematic and yeah. they they can give us a sense of relative size but even that um yeah. you know basically there were somewhere between 300 and 10,000 Greeks and there are way more Persians. I think that's, yeah. You know, yeah. 7,000, 7,000 Greeks to many more Persians. Mm -hmm. uh, so we find ourselves at Thermopylae. You want to talk a little bit about the geography there. Yeah. So as you mentioned a second ago, right, there are mountains in Greece um, and the mountains not only make it difficult to, grow a ton of food and sustain a ginormous population like you can in other places in the Mediterranean world. Um, but it makes it difficult to feed an army and it makes it difficult to move around, right? There are sort of yeah. places where you're sort of pinched, right? There's, there's, you know, Greece is a very sort of jaggedy shaped, uh, you know, series of peninsulas. And at times you've got water, right up next to mountains. And mm -hmm. this is what we have in uh, Thermopylae, right? And mm -hmm. what is, yeah. do you know what Thermopylae means? What the, the Greek means, Sam? It's a, it's a hot spring. Yeah, it's the hot gates is Thermopylae. Um, and there's a hot spring there, which, which gives it its name. Yeah. Um, but basically, um, this is sort of, this is, we're, we're out of the Peloponnese. We're sort of away from where, uh, the Spartans live. So they actually have to, to march up here. Um, but we move up and we're trying to cut the, the, the Persians off early in their, their expedition, right? They get past Thermopylae, which they do. Um, they'll eventually get into the sort of the gooey center of Greece and they'll get to places mm -hmm. like Athens, which they do. But the mountains at Thermopylae, the thing that makes it such a, you know, great location, there's a series of battles fought here at other points, right? The Romans fight here. Um, and I think one, one ninety, one ninety one, um, against the Seleucids, but the mountains run right up against to the Malian Gulf, and it left a very narrow strip of land. There was also a wall there, um, the Phocian Wall, which was sort mm -hmm. of built up to to further tighten it. But we think there was probably only maybe a hundred meters, um, in places. And when I say think, because you've got a tremendous uh, sort of salt flat right there. You've got rivers pouring out and they're very silty. And so the land actually keeps growing and filling in. And I hmm. think right now, well, first of all, where the battle was is about 20 meters or 20, yeah, 20 meters underground. So it's not an immediately available right. archaeological site. But I think the Malian Gulf is now like 10 kilometers from uh, the mountains. It's just filled oh, wow. in so much. So the wow. landscape has, has radically changed. 
And so, and there's also a highway that they built there. So if you go yes. and you're like, I want to see this myself. I want to like, I want to imagine what it was like. It doesn't look anything now uh, like it did then. No, there is a, there's a stone lion and there's an inscription. If I remember correct from when I visited Thermopylae, uh, not much. Uh, it is, you know, pretty cause you get to look out on the, on the coast and whatnot. Um, but again, not much to see there as an actual like site. But everything in Greece is pretty, right? Yes, you know, it's true. Again, this is why I love the Assassin's Creed Odyssey so much. It's just like looking at stuff. Um, I would, I, we'll have to go and see if like what Thermopylae looks like in the game. I don't know. Did you? Yeah, I haven't gone yet. To go there? No. no. Yeah. So when we pick that series up, we can we can report back. But the whole idea, right, is that you've got a very narrow strip of land that a small number of people can defend against you know, a large number of people. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of takes the advantage of the massive Persian hordes um, that Aeschylus tells us about even before Herodotus, right? In his play, The Persians, mm -hmm. which is actually our first source on the Persian Wars. Um, it's our earliest source, uh, Aeschylus's Persians from uh, 472. So only you know eight years after the fact. But... The Persians come in and the Spartans are there with their, you know, 10,000 of their, their best friends. And we have this showdown that gets set up. But yeah. there's also, right, there's also a back door. Yeah, a goat, the goat path the goat that Epialtes shows to the Persians and the immortals are, are brought to kind of outflank and encircle the Greeks. Um, and this is where we actually get Leonidas dismissing much of the Greek force and then perishing with the 300 Spartan warriors and presumably their, their helots. I would have. Well, they they don't all die. There. They don't all I die. That's true. 298, I think, is the, the number that most people. Right. Give. Two one, are sent off with eye injuries. Yeah. One guy had like conjunctivitis or something. And, and one guy. I think, one guy yeah. went back and fought, but then the other yeah. guy didn't because he was obeying uh, his orders, right? He was told right. not to fight. And then he what what they call them like the tremblers or something. If yeah. you go back to Sparta and you know you didn't die in battle, then you live an awful life and you get yeah. sort of deprioritized in every sense. Mm-hmm. Which is why, and you know, we'll we'll back up and talk about the battle in a second. But which is why, right? When when we see Ephialtes, and we'll talk more about him, so don't worry. We see Ephialtes, and he's like, you know, surrender, surrender, Spartans. I love you guys because I'm a Spartan. Which in real life he wasn't. Um, mm -hmm. And then Leonidas says, "May you live forever," right? Because mm -hmm. dying on the battlefield is the best possible outcome, right? Um, so more insight into the uh, the Spartan Mirage. Right. So we've but, got this yeah. battle. Yeah, or, go ahead. Well, do we want to talk about Ephialtes now? Do we want to put it off? Sure. Well, I was going to, uh, I mean, I was going to talk about some of these sort of the issues um, okay, at go the for end. It. But we, we, I mean, we could just say that, I mean, he is, he was a local guy, probably. He wasn't a hunchback. He wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, a mutant or something. He was just a guy um, who I think, was promised a bunch of, of action. Yeah, we wanted a bunch of money, and then, of course, the Persians eventually get defeated by the Greeks. Spoiler alert! And then the Spartans basically put a bounty on his head and say, "If anybody can kill Ephialtes for us, we'd love that." 
Um, and apparently some guy does, because also apparently Ephialtes does some other shady stuff that Herodotus promises in his history that he's going to cover. Uh, but whatever we have of Herodotus surviving doesn't actually include that. So apparently Ephialtes did some other shady stuff that got him killed, but the Spartans still rewarded the guy who killed him for that other stuff. Um, again, a, a villain for the Spartans, for sure. What do you make of this story, which is... Uh... It's it's part I think of the uh, the 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 graphic novel. This idea that Ephialtes was a Spartan, and right, the Spartans are supposed to kill their children that are not you know physically perfect enough, right? They're not weak. They're not supposed to be liabilities to the to the society. And Ephialtes' parents love him too much, which is you know a horrible violation of all things holy and good. Uh, they don't want to kill their kid, and so they leave and raise yeah. this this deformed child. But all he wants to do is serve Sparta. All he wants to do is achieve glory and honor and serve the very community that had rejected him. I mean, it doesn't make a ton of sense now, does it? Um, I, you know... There's so many things we can talk about Fialtes, and we'll touch on the problems of this movie in just a moment. But it is this, you know, in Greek thought, if you are a bad person, it is reflected in your outward appearance. Ugliness indicates kind of a a wickedness inside of you. You see this is a bunch of in Homer. The, the sort of like riffraff who disagree with the leaders of the army are described as these kind of hideous people and are rightfully beaten when they try and speak up like this is yeah, kind of very Thersides. much ingrained yeah their thoughts their societies exactly um so like effie in this movie is very much in that vein um but but yeah it is i think it's this question like why are you coming back to to sparta it like yeah having this vision that you want to participate in. I, I'm not sure I understand he, why he, he saw has that. He saw the mirage, right? He's buying into the sure. Spartan he mirage. is buying into the mirage for sure. But I think it's it's even more interesting, right? Because he comes back and he he wants to talk to Leonidas and you know the I think it's the captain whose name is just Captain um starts abusing him. Uh, and Gerard Butler is like, no, no, let me talk to mm. him. And he's like, he, you think he's like showing him love or not love, but respect. You know, he's he's actually talking to him like a person. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, lift your shield. And he can't. Right. And so then he's like, well, I've got a practical, legitimate reason to dismiss you. Because in Sparta, we fight with a, a, a phalanx, right, as a right. bunch of hoplites. And this is legit, right? You hold your shield. And when you hold your shield, you protect the guy next to you and you are protected by the guy at the side of you. And so you're all part of a team. And even if you're, you know, wetting yourself because you're terrified, um, you know that like the, the community is coming together to help you. Like this is like mm -hmm. a valid part of of, uh, you know, warfare in ancient Greek Greece. And so there's this idea that he's like he's like, I have a legitimate reason to like completely disregard you. And, and, yeah, maybe. But then what, what got me was that when these guys actually fight, 
there's not a whole lot of phalanxing, right? It's true. There's a couple, yeah. There's a couple like you know the like the the Tortuga formation where they all yeah. just sort of like go in a little pile. Yeah. But mostly it's just like one on one combat, and the ability to like hold a shield and protect the guy next to you has nothing to do with anything. Mm. So I that just you know. That is true. I, I hadn't I hadn't thought I much about like it. That. I didn't like that. I mean, it was, yeah. it was like using a a a legitimate ish practical reason to sort of get away with what you otherwise like wanted to do. I think right. It's sort of like using the legal uh, a legal justification to exclude somebody. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll come back to the anti disability narrative in this movie later. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about the actual battle. Uh, and, and and what happens there's there's so much fighting you know in this movie i was i i don't know if this says something about society or me but i kind of got bored of the action sequences i was like it's i've i've seen this happen like a hundred times like it just felt like well not all of it not right? all of it i mean have you seen war rhinos before I have not seen war rhinos before. I haven't seen elephants slipping off a cliff into the ocean. Um, they had grenades. I've, they had grenades. There was you know. a mutant executioner, right? Yeah. That guy who had like saws for arms. Yeah, no. Wild. I, I Oh, yeah. And then there's this one when they're like in like the weird sex tent in the Persian. There's just like a goat guy. Just a guy who's a goat. Do you see that? Who's like, no, I missed that. In, Oh, he's like playing a. Again, it is weird. There's a lot of like, oh, the the mystical East, um, yeah, which obviously is a problematic and not even accurate representation of what is going on, right, with Persia. But yeah, it is wild. Yeah, there are all these sorts of like, kind of abominations of nature is what makes up like the Persian in this movie. Um. Everything is larger than life, even Xerxes, right? Which is which is mm -hmm. interesting, right? Right. That you don't you don't often realize it because he's up on his little throne pyramid that they like push around or carry around. Right. Um, but right, Xerxes is huge, right? He's right. this giant effeminate god king. Um, and I actually read the interview where Zack Snyder is talking about how he in intentionally chose you know, a sort of effeminate God King who would be a threat feel, you know, feel threatening to sort of like straight 20 year old men, right. That being right. Ha having this, this effeminate guy yeah. take his will with you. But we see the size of Xerxes when he comes down and he's talking to Leonidas. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was, you know, I questioned myself. So I was frantically Googling both Rodrigo Santoro who plays Xerxes and Gerard Butler are both six two. So yeah, they're they're I unofficially mean, you know creating. I, I, this I know, difference. but some, yeah. I didn't know if it was that like if maybe he was a little bit bigger. But no, they're the so it's they're the same height. It's a larger than life, um, and I guess that, I mean, obviously, some of these things probably weren't happening. We know there's elephants. I mean, the, the we have elephants yeah. in the Kemenid Persia, um. The Romans even use elephants. I hadn't realized that until I was looking into yeah. this. I don't know that but, we have evidence for elephants at the Battle of Thermopylae or in the invasion of Greece necessarily, but it wasn't out of the norm to use them in war. I, th I think they did bring some on the invasion to Greece. Whether they make okay. the Thermopylae, I don't think so. Um, the Romans even brought an, an elephant to Britain. 
um, in one of the invasions of Britain, which is weird. Seems like, like a single a bad elephant. Call. Yeah, I mean, it didn't work. Well, I guess it worked. They won, but so there, there, there is like little kernels of of truth. But I think that, and you know, I think it's hyperbolic. Obviously, that there's this the 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 weird hordes of people from the east coming in and they're there there's weird piercings on everyone's faces everyone has like chains draped yeah. on their faces and like it's it's just all very strange and foreign but i think that does sort of capture the the, the idea of what the greeks in the fifth century thought about persia right is this okay. what the persian army looked like probably not um almost certainly not is this what maybe if you had asked a Greek on the street, you know, an Athenian or a Theban or a Spartan, you know, just a, you know, if, if you sat them down and were like, here, I, here's a movie, watch it. Would they be like, yeah, that, that checks out. Right. I mean, it, it, this is hard because we don't know what the Greeks thought about the Persians for the most part. I mean, we have, right. we have these, some things like Herodotus. Um, we can look at Aeschylus's, the Persians, right. but what the hell does Aeschylus know? What does Herodotus know? Again, he's five, right? right? You know, so you're you're re relying on, you know, secondary sources. Right. right? Again, who's going to tell us? Who who tells us what happens when the last Spartan dies at Thermopylae? You know, I, I think it's one of these things. I might push back a little bit um, because, of course, I, I think people assume come and again, take not, it. Um. Again, this is not what you are doing, but I think people often assume that the ancient world is more disconnected than it was, right? Um, the the Greeks are very much aware of what the Persians are doing, right? Some Greek city-states are on kind of the western coast of Turkey, uh, which butts up to what becomes, you know, the Persian Empire. And then, you know, Persia also takes over those Greek city-states. Um, Sam, Dr. Sam mentioned that earlier in the episode. Um, so there is this, like, interaction. Like, it is not like these people are completely separate and they show up and they're like, who the heck are you? Um, I think there's a little bit of, like, you know, people assume you know, the depictions we have of like Christopher Columbus, like first coming to the Americas and, and meeting the native peoples there, that that's how the ancient people interacted with each other. And that's not all at all the case. Like there were very complicated trade routes and highways and things going mm -hmm. on. Like these luxury goods are being purchased and consumed in Greece um, from Persia. And, you know, when we look at, you know, what did the Greeks think of the Persians? Well, it's true. It's a little bit hard. Like how much does Aeschylus, a playwright or Herodotus, a historian know about Persia and the way they actually operate and whatnot. We do have some depictions of Persian clothing, for example, on Athenian vases. Um, and, you know, when Athenians depict other people, like I think oftentimes you very famously think of Persians as wearing a specific sort of hat and kind of these um, kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it very ornate colorful clothing that is a little Striped bit more leggings yeah. right uh <laughs> you know this sort of stuff as opposed to you know greek uh chiton or something like that right so so you get these different pieces of clothing and there's oftentimes question like are these athenian vases depicting uh persians and what they look like or are athenians themselves maybe buying some clothing from persia and you know giving it a whirl um again there there is this idea of there is there is a lot of cross-pollination happening in the ancient world that people don't assume and again the greeks have their own identity uh but it is not kind of completely alien or completely removed from persian influence 
And I'll also say this, when people read Herodotus, um, Herodotus isn't all Persia bad and Greece good. Um, Herodotus is oftentimes accused of being too friendly to Persia and a little bit too, you know, sympathetic. Um, Cyrus, one of the, you know, great Persian kings, um, is actually looked on quite favorably by Herodotus. And Xerxes' great fall is the fact that he has too much hubris. It's his mm-hmm. hubris that it's his downfall. He's not this kind of craven, you know, effeminate, whatever, whatever. Like this kind of like depiction of the Persians as the as the other um, is oftentimes set up in Herodotus as like, what makes us Greek? We're Greek because we don't do the things that the Persians do or whatnot. But the Persians aren't necessarily this kind of like scary alien force in a lot of the way that I think in modern times, you know, other people is are, are are portrayed that way. You know, people who are considered enemies of the United States oftentimes get this kind of otherizing um, kind of mirage put over them. Oh, they're scary. They're different. Um, and I, I think we would be good to not assume, not buy into the narratives of our own time, but also understand that the ancients are thinking about this thing differently too. This is a battle of East versus West, but it isn't West good, East bad. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, I'll, I'll push back a little bit and then we can let it be. <laughs> yeah. Cause we could probably go on forever. Right. I, I mean, you're absolutely right, right that there is, there is a connectivity between the Greek world and the Persian world. Um, and there's, you know, traffic going both ways, but I think that there's also just in the ancient world, people aren't trapped. Most people are just not traveling or right. moving. Sure. And there, there's still, you know, a, a limited exposure. Um, to other ideas. And I think, sure. you know, to, to, to return to my sort of comfort zone, think about like the Roman empire, for example, I mean, it, the secret power of the Romans is that, I mean, it's a, it's a network of cities, which enables the movement of stuff. But, you know, for the most part, it's still, uh, you know, most people don't probably move 10 miles from where they're, they're born. But yeah, I mean, so the Persians are, they're definitely not Greek. And they're they're yeah. even more clearly not Spartan. Right. Right. The Spartans are set up as the sort of complete opposites of right. the Persians. Right. And, you know, the Spartans are are super soldiers because, right, what's their profession? They're soldiers. Um, right. They don't they're they they do not have their, you know, they're landed gentry. You know, fighting is like a hobby for them. They don't have jobs. Um that's too uh, I'll take it back. I'll take it back. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, on the other hand, the, the, the secret power of Persia is, it's huge. It's rich right. and it's huge. And so, you know, it's, it, they have crazy things like war elephants and magic grenades and all sorts of things because the, the territory is so vast. And so Xerxes is drawing on these crazy people and things from all corners of his world. Um, and so you've got sort of one super concentrated small group against this massive force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's also, this is sort of the, the Persian invasions in a nutshell. And what I think is so attractive about it, there's this sort of East versus West thing, but just the fact that something as big and as wealthy as the Persian empire could be defeated by a bunch of freedom loving slash slave owning Greeks yeah. I mean it, it's it still is impressive. I mean that the that the Persians were right. unsuccessful. The you know not to discount the what the what the Greeks did. 
But th- I think this battle is just sort of sets up this extreme dichotomy, these extreme right. opposites. You know, Xerxes is unwilling to die, right? When when Leonidas throws the spear and it it cuts his cheek, he's like, "Oh my god!" I don't, and I didn't know if that was like a moment of, "I'm bleeding, therefore I'm not a god." Or just I can't believe somebody would dare do that to me, or or what? But I mean, the Spartans know they're dying. They go right. from the beginning. They're like, "We're gonna die." I'm not sure if that is historically accurate. Whether they, because they're, they're waiting for more Spartans to come. Right when the Carnea right. is over, more Spartans are gonna come, and so they're not they're not assuming that they're gonna die. I mean, they're always willing to die. I think, right. but they didn't go knowing it's a death sentence. But it contrasts, right? The Persians, who you know, Xerxes is so unwilling to die. He's so mm. unwilling, um, and he doesn't die, right? And if you again, you read Aeschylus's Persians, you can see the dramatic homecoming of Xerxes in rags as he returns to his mama back at the palace. But you thought the fighting was too much. I thought it was too much. Um, again, maybe it's just because I'm impatient and I I want I want constantly new things to be shown to me. Um, it, it, it felt like TikTok. a lot of the, more TikTok for I, you. I, I, it was a lot of the same. I felt like toward you know I don't know minute forty of of the actual battle, um, but of course all of these Greeks die in the end. Um, again, lie on the battlefield and Thermopylae, except for the one, except for the one guy that gets sent home. Right, it's true to tell the story. Uh, to, right, to the he's the narrator. Point. Yeah. Right. Uh Faramir from the Lord of the Rings is as I like to as I like to think of him. Uh David yeah. Wyndham. Um, but um this is Thermopylae is again famously a, a, a Greek defeat. Again, the, again of against all odds, they take down many Persians. Again, Herodotus' numbers can't be trusted here again, but again, the it is impressive that the Greeks hold off so long, and who knows how long they would have held off the Persians if they hadn't been betrayed. Um, but Thermopylae is actually, in fact, a, a Greek defeat, which I, I think a lot of people forget or uh, I, I think people credit it too much as a moral victory, uh, probably thanks to this film and the graphic novel. Um, but this battle is very much framed as a battle, uh, battle of slavery versus freedom. And we've already talked a lot about how Spartans, this is already a little bit uh disingenuous on the Spartans part, considering how many slaves that they had. They were the largest Greek uh, society in terms of slave owners, like slave ownership, just like there is this kind of contrast. Like we are not going to be slaves, even though there are slaves here that we're forcing to fight, but are not depicted in the movie and things like that. Um, I know you wanted to get to this idea of freedom. And the other thing I will say too, is oftentimes Herodotus' histories in the Persian Wars is a, is very much focused on this idea of this is a this is a battle for Greek independence again not Greece necessarily as a unified whole but that the individual city states within Greece should have this kind of autonomy and this ability to be independent of Persian rule. Yeah, I mean, I think it's this. I mean, there's obviously a lot of talk about freedom in this movie, and you know, I think some of it's pointed. I've got a couple of quotes. But there's also, yeah, as you mentioned, Sam, there's this this idea in Herodotus, and again, you get it elsewhere um, in places like Aeschylus' Persians, where it is the sort of the, the free versus the slave, the enslaved, right? And there's this constant recourse 
um, for the Athenians, you know, that we're free and the Persians are, you know, enslaved. And, you know, there's this famous scene in, in, in Aeschylus' Persians where Xerxes' mom is sort of learning that she, they're, they're, they're sort of getting a sense that the Athenians have defeated the Persians at the Battle of Salamis. And she's like, who are these guys? Are there like a ton of them? And the Persians are like, no, not that many. And she's like, well, is there like king really dope? And they're like, no, they don't really have a king. They're just kind of free and there's only a handful of them. And she's like, oh, that's so intriguing. Um, and so it, it, it is an ancient thing, but I think there's additions in this movie, right? I mean, yeah. mm -hmm. there's this, there's, Early in the movie, right, when uh, Leonidas and, and, and Gorgo are laying in bed before they have some gratuitous nudity, nudity sex. Um, and he says, you know, then what must the king do to have his world when the very laws he has sworn to protect force him to do nothing? And Gorgo responds, it is not a question of what a Spartan citizen should do, nor a husband, nor a king. Instead, ask yourself, my dearest love, what should a free man do? Right. And so it's it's I think this is taking it one step further because it's not like free versus enslaved. But because in the movie, right, he's been sort of banned from going. Right. There's this this added letter, you know, layer where it's mm -hmm. like what I know is right is different than the law. And. So when do you break the law when you know it's the right thing to do for your society? Uh -huh. Right. And this is a huge topic. I mean, and we can't go into this, but there's, there's layers. I mean, is it, is it a civil disobedience kind of thing or is it a, you know, American mm -hmm. revolution kind of thing? You know, when is it right to, to, to break the law when what you think is right to do is expressly forbidden? It's not a very Spartan thought. That's not uh, a Spartan thought, and it's not a Greek thought. It's not in Herodotus. It's not, I think, even in the graphic novel. Um, so I think we have to read this yeah. as U.S. 2006. There's a little bit of civil disobedience in like the story of Antigone, uh, which but is I don't, a, I don't think this tragedy. is civil disobedience, right? Though, right. No. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it is a very modern thought, and again, a very non like if you were to assign this modern thought to anybody maybe it's more believable with an athenian it's really not with a spartan at all uh because again something that the film gets right sometimes is this idea of like the focus in sparta is on the collective is for sparta like the importance of you as an individual is much diminished yeah. in sparta uh so it is you know there are multiple moments again leonidas being anti-religious him here being a very independent thinker um, like again, not Greek and especially not Spartan in this moment. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I hadn't thought about this. Um, but I think it's definitely um more Athenian than Spartan. What it really makes me think about is Socrates, right? Sure. The one of the heroes of our last episode, where he is always sort of not expressly challenging, but he's always asking what's justice what's right and there's even He's, this moment right and, and after the athenian defeat at age right the athenians are going to rush and sort of break the law um in their their persecution of some of the people uh responsible and i believe socrates stands up against them right he doesn't he he stand up and or, or am i misremembering 
I, I don't know what moment you're specifically talking about, to be honest, but Socrates pitches himself. I mean, the way he describes himself is the gadfly of Athens. He's right. constantly there pestering. And like that is, I mean, the Athenians famously kill him for being annoying and not believing in the gods and corrupting the youth, right? Socrates, as the gadfly, doesn't turn out great for the gadfly. He does get swatted. Uh, but there is this, you know, a certain amount of, you know, allowing Socrates to be that sort of presence that would not likely be tolerated in Sparta. From what we know about Sparta, again, a lot of this is, again, hard to draw very crisp lines about. Yeah, maybe I'm misremembering. I thought there was something about Aegis Spotamai and Socrates. I could be crazy. I'm often accused of such things. But if this is not a Spartan idea, then what, I mean, what kind of idea is it? I mean, it, it, it's it feels American. American. It it's feels an American, American idea. Right. Well, I think we can jump now a little bit into the criticisms of this film. Yeah. One of the one of the most famous reactions to this film was actually the Iranian government, uh, you know, banned the showing of this film and even like submitted like a formal complaint to UNESCO, basically saying this is anti-Iranian propaganda being perpetrated by the U.S. You know, whether or not you think that's a legitimate criticism, um, but it is very much it is hard to watch this movie and not think about america's mindset in the early 2000s and the war on terror and it is really hard to not look at the persians and look at the spartans these kind of like super white buff guys versus a bunch of black and brown guys from the middle east and not really think about the context of what this is being produced and, and put out like it, it very much feels like you know the Christian West versus the Islamic East. Again, obviously, uh, you know, Muhammad uh, hasn't been born yet at the time of the Persian Wars. But again, in this movie, in the way that it is being set up, it is this kind of like Western idealized version of what whiteness is versus, you know, the barbaric elements of black and brown culture. Like it, 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 I mean, again, this is where this film gets all of its criticism and it is not subtle and it is so easy to read it as a, a, a racist piece of media, as a piece of media that is down on women, um, as a piece of media that is, yeah, like homophobic too. Like the Persians are like very like, you know, fluid sexuality, like in, indulging in like, you know, carnal pleasures, whereas the Spartans only have sex with their wives. And, you know, it, it kind of erases all of the different, it, it creates this kind of false image of, of Sparta versus Persia, right? Again, yeah, and, and Spartans are Athens, famous, right? Right. Leonidas calls Athens the, you know, the boy, boy loving Athens right. or something. And, and you, there's a, a huge institutionalized, Pederasty yeah. system in Sparta, right? It's part of the educational system, so it's right. You know, it's it's just ironic. It's funny, right? They just completely erase any any sort of like uh, same sex relationships that are happening in Sparta, and like, no, that's what Athenians do, and that's for sure what Spart like uh, what Persians do, right? And it's like, no, absolutely not. What are you What are you saying? This is completely wrong. Um, so again, it, it is one of these things where, like, as a piece of media, I mean, you asked at the top of the show. Do I think it's good that we have this representation as opposed to nothing at all? And again, I, I think when people look at 300, they also see 
a piece of media that is oftentimes picked up by young men who Zack Snyder specifically names as his audience, you know, young white men who have nationalistic tendencies and who tend to be radicalized by the far right and uh, kind of like white ideology. And it's really hard to see how this piece of media doesn't fall directly into their hands as a piece of propaganda. Um, and it is disappointing because I think you could tell the story of Thermopylae in a very interesting, nuanced way. And that's obviously not what we get with 300. It is ham-fisted, I think, at best when it comes to anything beyond the visuals. I think, I mean, I'm curious um, about that, that the 1962, the 300 Spartans, what that movie looks like. And if that has any of the same, I mean, I know that has been uh, viewed as sort of a Cold War um, it was sure. used as sort of a metaphor for the again east and west, but it's yeah. I mean, it's so interesting how you know we as people, and it, you see it on both sides of the aisle. I mean, people take things and misappropriate, um, and they you know use things however they want. But it's yeah. I mean, there, there's been some some, some far right stuff, right? The identitarian movement um, uses the lambda um, as their the lambda that's on the Spartan shield specifically after this movie. Um, and then that, that, yeah, that whole, that, that question of, it's a question of Homeland security as I see it, right. That what do you do when there's a threat to the community and it's against the law to act on it? Uh, the first place I go with that, right. Is thinking about things like Guantanamo Bay, which was a hot topic in 2006 when this movie comes out. Um, it also makes me think about Cicero and the Catalinarian conspiracy, which I would love to do a show on that. Cause that's. You know, Mary Beard presents it as a very modern thing, the introduction to her her book, SPQR. Hmm. But there's also this, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of Second Amendment um, right stuff, uh, gun rights built into here, I think. Um, the, the Spartan phrase, you know, that we get here, the, the Molon Labe, you know, mm -hmm. come and come take and it take from it. me, you know, yeah. you know, from my, my cold, dead hand kind of thing. Uh so it's interesting. And that motto is used by um, some special forces uh, commands in the United States. Uh, so it's interesting. I think that it's, 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 it's fascinating the way people have sort of taken this idea of Sparta, this Spartan mirage. And I'm not saying that Sparta wasn't militaristic and they didn't prioritize, um, you know, military over other things, which they, they clearly did. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's hard. And I think this is much of the ancient world, right? It's hard to sort of get to what actually happened and who people actually were because there are so many lenses yeah. and problems that we have to, yeah. rightly or wrongly, sort of create these mirages, these, you know, what we sort of imagine happened. And it's often romanticized or glorified or exaggerated. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I could say it much better than than that. It, it is it is an interesting piece of media to be sure. And interesting is not oftentimes a helpful word because it's not specific. So, but there's so loaded, many ways yeah. there's so many ways to 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 think about it. And you know, for better or for worse, it is now part of the, the kind of public record and people are familiar with it. And I think it, you know, there is value of picking apart uh, where this film goes wrong and like how it can be corrected. And again, this this is something that you have to do regularly with history. Right. This idea of fighting for freedom and independence is not a bad thing. And like it is admirable and whatnot. And also it's important to acknowledge that the Spartans aren't living up to 
this ideal um, in a way that we would find acceptable because of course slavery is at the very core of their society and so who gets to be free i think is like i think a question that you could ask at the end of this movie uh leonidas his son his wife should be free but Shouldn't all of these other people in Greece should be free? Shouldn't the Persians who are being forced to fight in this war, shouldn't they be free? Aren't they being forced to, you know, come to Greece and do this against their will? Like, I think I think there's a little bit of that that this movie doesn't ever attempt to to think about. Well, I think we should probably call it there, um, but we're not done with 300. Don't worry. We're going to come back next week to talk about the sequel which you have probably never seen. I've never seen Sam. I assume you've never seen it. I've never seen this one now. Uh, I think we, we don't have to deal with the issue of whether it's been super, super influential on different sort of aspects of society. I don't think anyone sure. ever watched it. Um, but uh, yeah, so come back next week. We'll talk about that but in the meantime. Uh, thank you for being a listener. Um, you can help us out. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Give us a five-star review on Apple. I think that's the best place to leave reviews. Let us know what you want us to talk about, whether you love 300, whether you hated it. Um, if you want us to talk about uh, the different Persian, Greco-Persian wars, whatever, shoot us an email, allroadspod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at allroadspod. And uh, yeah, we know all roads lead to Rome, so why not take a detour with us? Again, I'm your host, Dr. Sam Kindick. And I'm Sam Hahn. Bye. Bye.